Hello, and welcome to the Commons Podcast. You're listening to Episode 2, Stockholm Syndrome and the Working Class. Hello. Yes, hello. We're back. (laughs) We are. Did you know today's birthday? I did. What do you think about all that? I think I saw a lot of really pretty pictures of northern Minnesota on my Instagram feed today. I know, me too. I really want to go up to Grand Marais now. Like, I've already been missing Grand Marais. But uh, now I'm really missing it. I know, especially since we can't go anywhere anyways. We might might as well be out outdoors in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I know. And I, I want to be a good altruist and follow every rule that there is. But No, you don't. <laughs> not, not in this particular case. <laughs> I really want to leave and go to Grand Marais and just stay in the woods with the moose. With the moose? Yeah. Are you talking about our son or are you talking about natural moose? <laughs> Both. I want to see moose <laughs> and then I'll, I'll, I will take moose. Uh, that would be that would be wonderful, man. I'm getting tired of this coronavirus. I think everybody is. I, I mean, I'm sure. But but at the risk of making people angry, we're, we're very blessed to live in a state that's not been super affected. Yeah. I'll just preface it with that. I, right. But, but still. I'm, but I, I'm it would tired. be nice to go to a restaurant. <laughs> it would. It would be nice to like sit down and have some meal that I can make at home made for me. You know. Mm-hmm. Have some waiter bring down my drink. I mean, that, some luxuries, you just, you don't hey, realize how much Although you I have them. learned how to cook and bake so many things. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been kind of nice. We've learned a couple of new things. You've found your love for baking. I've sort of found my love for podcasting. <laughs> right. <LOL. laughs> I've also played way too much Fortnite and stressed out about it. This has been a really rough quarantine, man. Really? I've not died yet, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, I feel like I'm wasting away. Yeah. And I think that's the toughest part for a lot of people is they're used to, like, going, 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 going. And now that they have to stop, they don't know what to do with themselves. Right. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like, I saw this meme where, you know, like, the SpongeBob meme where his eyes is go- like his eyes are going in two different directions, like, symbolizing he can't make a decision. Yeah. And it's, like, me wanting to be lazy because I'm the, I'll never have this much time off ever again. But me wanting to do something productive, knowing I'm never going to have this much time on my hands ever again it's literally me i'm like <laughs> it's time for true. me to take eight hours out of my day and binge watch some amazing show but then another part of me is like man i should really do like eight hours of research for this podcast because that's what i want to do after the coronavirus is done i want to continue doing that and totally i've uh I'm definitely not <laughs> i just realized my headphones have been plugged in this whole time awesome. i've been sitting here with headphones on my head like a stupid yeah well I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh huh. Okay. We're professional, I promise. Super oh yeah, that's much better. Holy crap! I can hear myself. That's awesome. I'm glad that you can hear yourself. Do you enjoy the sound of your voice? No. No, neither do I. I hate that about the podcast. But the thing but... is, like, since it's in my head, anyways, it doesn't sound like I see. I don't mind listening to myself talk, which says a lot about me as a person. But I don't like hearing myself played back or like hearing Mm. myself in a video because i think my voice sounds weird but i think that's a lot of people see i think my voice sounds weird too but that's interesting so when you like have thoughts into your head do they they have a voice that's a good question i don't they don't have my voice 
Okay, that's what I feel like. <laughs> I don't even know what mine is, but it's definitely not my voice. I feel like it's more like text. Like I don't even hear a voice necessarily. It's almost like I'm reading. Right. Yeah. In yeah. my head. Okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't the only one because you're like, yeah, I hear my voice all the time in my head. I was like, no, I hear my I voice when I'm that. talking. Like I said, I don't oh, okay. like listening to myself talk, which okay. is where my joke went. Yeah, it's why you do the editing because I freak out when I hear us talking because I'm like, oh my gosh, I hate this. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I sound so weird. And well, I mean, you're you, like, you probably do two thirds of the talking in these, anyways. So it'd be more of you listening true. to yourself. Yeah, I'm I'm a fast talker, and I have a lot to say on a lot of things. Yeah, so I apologize. Whereas I more I listen to you all the time, so it's, yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> you do listen to me way way more than I listen to you. You know what's also difficult? Speaking of coronavirus, difficult. Huh. Segway. Stockholm syndrome is difficult. It's it's really difficult, man. <laughs> most awkward segue. <laughs> we have to talk about this eventually, okay? I know, because okay. that's what the, that's what the topic is. But do you know is. much about Stockholm Syndrome, Kelsey? Um, I know about what it is in the sense of, like, it. I knew what it was before we started this, which is why I thought it was a good idea, but it's yeah. basically when you are in a relationship with somebody who is abusing you, or you have a relationship with them, whether it's because of, like... I, I was assuming that it included family, but maybe not necessarily. No, it definitely doesn't. It's it's quite the opposite, actually. Okay. Don't worry, I'll, I'll explain it. But I, I'm a self-proclaimed genius because I was thinking the other day. I was in my chair, and I'm sitting in my chair, and I was, like, trying to think of the next topic for our, our podcast, and I was, like, and it just hit me in the head. It was, like, you know, just, like, just God-sent epiphany. I was, like, man... I think the working class of America suffers from Stockholm Syndrome. And I don't know where that thought came from, but it like hit me like a bag of bricks in the face. And I was like, whoa, And I can corroborate this because I worked in an environment that was very much... Yeah, because when I said it to you, you were like, like oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we do. And, and so I was like, well, let's, let's, let's dig into this a little bit. What is Stockholm Syndrome? Well, the history behind it is that I guess there was a bank robber in Stockholm, and he took a bunch of hostages, and the hostages, for some reason, had a mental breakdown and a part of their self-preservation, they started assisting the robber. So they would, like, not corroborate with uh, government officials or the police. They would help him rob things or defame things or, you know, whatever. They just joined the Merry Crew to stay alive. But even after they were released... Even after, so like the police were just assuming they're like, they're just afraid that we're going to mess things up. They don't trust the police. Oh, but even after the robber was, you know, put down or captured or whatever, you know, he was arrested, they still started to support him. And, the, and this was a really weird thing for psychologists because like, you're no longer in danger. What's going on? Right. And it was like a, an undiscovered at the time self-defense mental mechanism that your brain goes into to like help you. I guess, rationalize the situation and, and make normal. And so four signs of Stockholm Syndrome is a hostage's development of positive feelings towards the captor. So that's that's symptom number one. But you can see this in abusive domestic relationships where, you know, uh, person A beats up person B and person B loves person A for it. We don't know why, but it happens. So this is not specific to just Stockholm Syndrome, but that's the first sign. Second sign is that there's no previous relationship between the hostage and the captor. Therefore, it can't be family, which is why... Right. The, which is why I said it's quite the opposite, actually. Right. So in this case, a robber breaks into a bank, and the bank teller develops this really quick 
relationship where they now want to help the captor. It's part of like they call it Stockholm syndrome. You just develop like like a form of like attachment to the robber, and we don't know why. Um, symptom number three, is, or sign number three, is a refusal by hostages to cooperate with police forces and other government authorities unless the captors themselves happen to be members of the police force or government authorities. That's an interesting point because. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into the reason why later. But anyways, uh, sign number four is a hostage's belief in the humanity of the captor because they cease to perceive the captor as a threat when the victim holds the same values as the aggressor. So if you need to replay that last bit to go over it, please pay attention. I mean, I, I literally just Googled Stockholm Syndrome and found some of these signs, so I'm sure you could do the same. Um, and, and just look at these four signs and track along with us because... I think this is something that could explain a lot of the issues that the working class of America have, especially when it comes to its power dynamics with the rest of the political classes. Um, but kind of what we've talked about in the last episode, if you remember, we talked about the two-party system and how it's really hurting everyday normal people because it creates the lesser of two evils problem. And so that that also plays into this issue. Yeah, and in the sense that we're kind of building on Yeah, we're our building on this podcast. a little bit. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think it goes without saying. There's been an assault on the working class of this country. Working class could include parts of the middle class as well, and we've been saying that the middle class is under assault for decades. Yeah. And we're not trying to like minimize Stockholm syndrome in any way by attaching it to this type of thing cuz I I don't think that this would be like clinical Stockholm syndrome? No, no, no. Yeah, but like in the way of like it, it's it's a good example. If you were to if you were to sort of like humanize the the class system where you have like the corporate class, the rich one percent, and then you have like the middle class somewhere in the middle, and you have the working class, the lower right. classes. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you were to take those three people, quote unquote, it's it's more of a metaf- metaphor yeah, than an actual thing. Just For sure. To get that out of the way, so nobody yeah, comes not after trying us. to be. <laughs> insensitive towards anyone who has suffered from this in the past but it it just it made a good good topic it's a metaphor it's a metaphor (laughs) um but there's been an assault on the working class and especially working people of this country i mean i remember watching clips um of like bill clinton who funny enough also during his policies and time as president really attack the working class in a lot of ways systematically but i remember him saying something to the effect of like if you're a single mom you shouldn't have to work more than one job to be able to pay for your bills um you know if you're a family one income should support you you know things like that and so he raised the minimum wage at the time i think in sometime in the late 90s to uh what it is now i think at 725 right 750 yeah, I think federally it's still seven twenty five. Well, right, th- that's the last time I think that he raised the minimum wage. That anyone has raised the minimum wage federally is like seven twenty five back in like nineteen ninety eight or something like Which that. Which is wild. I mean, it's been twenty two years. And like, see, I grew up thinking that the minimum wage was like the minimum that you can pay like kids to do jobs for yeah, you. Yeah, right. But evidently, the minimum wage was set forth. Uh, didn't you say from um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt? It was meant to be a living wage. Right. So a ba- uh, it's true. Intentions. The minimum wage was supposed to be a bare minimum living wage, like the minimum yeah. that you needed to survive. And this comes from um, a social democratic 
uh, standpoint of like uh, not equal outcome. There's a distinct difference between equal outcome and equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. And equal opportunity meaning everybody who works has a living wage. What you do from there is totally up to your own brains and will and drive. But if you work, you're going to have what you have earned, which will be minimum, you'll be able to survive. Well, yeah. And like if you work the standard 40 hours a week, because I think that's another yeah. that I think that's another thing is that people are like, oh, I'm surviving, but they have to work 60 hours a week a week to get by. Right. But that's that's what I mean is that if you work a full time job, you only work one to survive. Right. But nowadays, single mom could work two full time jobs and still be under the bus and right. still falling behind on payments and still struggling to put food on the table. Oh, and so easily. And easily. so again, there's been an assault on the working class has it's it's ageless. It's just always been a conflict. But I think right now we live in a time where corporate America and the 1% have way more dominance over the working class than it's pretty unprecedented. I'm not saying it's never happened before because obviously there were systems back when kings, the 1%, yeah. ruled over the 98% of French civilians and it caused a revolution. I'm not saying this has never, it's never been worse than this, but for modern history, I think since the Industrial Revolution, we've not really seen quite an unprecedented uh, Im- like imbalance in the power structures of this country. Yeah, I can agree with that. And so, um, but... Here's something that I was doing some research in, and I'm going to build into the Stockholm Syndrome idea by explaining how the working class has been abused, how this assault on the working class is sort of formulated, and so that we can, like, really identify key points. Because, you know, if you go back up to, you know, the, the point where signs of Stockholm Syndrome show that the abused, the hostages, take a kind favor towards their captors or the aggressors or the abusers right whether it's sympathy or yeah either way they're they're showing positive feelings or they or they they create in their minds sort of false positives to rationalize the behavior of the of the abuser right we see this in other forms of abuse outside of stockholm syndrome Um, i was gonna say i think that rationalizing their behavior the behavior of the abuser is not specific to Stockholm Syndrome necessarily. No, it's not. But um, I think there will be other specific points that made Stockholm Syndrome personally a good metaphor to use in this in this specific case. No, I agree. Because if when you're talking about a job, you it's not like you know them personally. Right. Um, Whether or it's your boss like you, or... Well, like also us working class people, like we don't know the dude who runs Amazon. Like, no. We don't know Jeff Bezos. Like... We don't know too many senators. We can contact them, I suppose, but we don't know them. We don't have relationships with them. So, again. Oh, you mean my good friend Joe? Yeah, right. My good friend Joe. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so, the working class has been assaulted. We've said that a couple of times. But how? How has it been attacked? How has things gotten worse? Well, something that working class people have largely relied on is unions. Uh, unions are places, uh, or sorry, organizations within the workplace that allow for more democratic uh, results being had, especially when it comes to wages and benefits. So if Amazon wants to cut its workers' health care, unions can fight back on behalf of the workers to say, listen, we're all either going to strike or quit or leave or raise hell unless you reverse that decision or at least reach an agreement with us. You know, And this is called collective bargaining. You know, 
boss man doesn't have complete control over the situation, the workers also have a say because it's sort of a mentality of, listen, you can't, you as a business cannot survive without us, and we as workers cannot survive without you. How can we come to an agreement together? The workers or the collective are bargaining for something better. Yes, exactly. In so unions in a perfect world are everywhere in every workplace and workers can come to the table with the board or the boss and have a, sort of a voice, a representation, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is, I mean, this is ultimately, I think it's kind of cool because if you think about it, uh, the mentality behind a union is what caused the American Revolution, right? Because King George was taxing the crap out of the colonies, but they had no representation. Mm-hmm. So in the case of corporate America, they'll cut wages or reduce benefits. That, in a, in a way, could be viewed as like a tax. Because you're getting something taken away from you that you would normally have relied upon. Mm -hmm. I.e., in the case of the Revolutionary War, King George was taking money away. And when you sign on to a job and you get a benefit and now it's being taken away, that could almost be viewed as like a tax. Sure. And so, but either way, something's being taken away. Fundamentally, you had something, and someone more powerful than you is taking it away. Even and even if it's something as simple as they're not, they don't even have to be explicitly taking something away. Like if it's they're not raising wages to something that is livable. Yeah. After so many years of inflation and you know bubbles popping and economics yeah. and things happening yeah sorry that was economy. a horrible way to explain that it's okay that was more <laughs> that was that was more everyday language speak <laughs> yeah Bubble, bubbles pop <laughs> um but yeah and so my point is is that the american colonies at first if we're going to go down deep into history they first advocated for representation in parliament mm -hmm. no taxation without representation that means that they demanded representation in return to be taxed. So they were like, listen, man, you can tax us, but we got to have representation. Which is fair. Which is totally fair. This is exactly what unions do. Unions would be like, listen, man, you can cut our wages, but we got to have a seat at the table. Ooh. Corporations don't like that. Neither did King George. <laughs> um, but here's a stat that I saw is that when it comes to voting population, now that's not all of America. But let's just show you, because this is a political podcast, what where political power is, has coalesced. Union votes have, for the majority of our history, since the Industrial Revolution, especially in bigger cities where labor organizers are much more prevalent, um, unions have, have been a key part of, of our political system. Because when working class people have representation in the workplace and now they have an organization where they can come together and decide which political candidates are going to best represent their causes in the workplace, well, now you have an organized labor. Well, yeah, workers' rights is as old as America itself almost, isn't it? it? It is. And so this has been something that's been really crucial to our history. Now, the way it's manifested today is a little different. And so since, I think, 2000, which is about as far back as I could find in recent history when they started tracking how many how much of the general population was part of a union and how much was not and so in the 2000 election al gore versus george w bush 26 percent of the popular vote was within a union so let's just say a quarter of america in the voting you know of the voting age population and of the popular vote 
was like, quarter was represented by unions, which is isn't, it, isn't unreasonable. Right, because it's there a little are, low, but it's not unreasonable because not every job. Like, I feel like unions are more for they're more blue collar jobs for sure. Like, yeah, more blue collar or teachers or you know people yeah. that are providing a service or right. whatever. People that aren't working part of like corporate america so to speak sure but even in corporate america you have unions um right and it depends on the type of job target target has unions oh um, yeah and depending on that would make sense though because they're more they're they're service based as well right and so a lot of service bases uh, or like manufacturers will have like the the factory workers have unions carpenters have unions mm-hmm. teachers have unions so there's a lot of like blue collar work that's not i Is guess you could say like blue collar work hmm What's that? Is teaching considered blue collar work? Not necessarily. I think that's I didn't, a whole category I didn't of its own. Think, yeah, I would think so because isn't blue collar like? It's like it's like things that like like contracting, right? Uh, or like, like uh, typical nine to fives in the factory where there's not like the a, blue collar like, is not skilled, like it's not a specific skill. But then carpentry would be a specific. I guess I don't know what blue collar would be defined as. I mean, I can look it up, but I've always understood it as more of a. Uh, something that like a trade or something that you can oh, work sure. with your hands. Yeah, that probably so that, yeah. I suppose a trade would be, but then I think that would eliminate like factory workers because I mean anybody can get on a factory line. I mean it depends. I don't. Uh, I'll look, I'll I don't look know, it up. I, I can pull a blue switch. collar. I don't really? mean to offend anyone who works in a factory, but I just I I could pull a lever if I had to. Well, yeah, but, but you've never worked in a factory, so just yeah. <laughs> okay. <sorry. laughs> Blue collar, relating to manual work or workers, particularly in industry. So, any if you're not working at a desk. Okay, that makes sense. White collar jobs are like corporate America. That that makes. That's why I made that distinction. Ah, okay. See, so yes, Kelsey's right. Blue collar <laughs> is industrial workers, where white collar is like in an office behind a cubicle. So I feel like being a teacher would be like a weird like in between. Yeah, I suppose, which makes sense why they have unions. Yeah. Um, well, and also they're not treated very well at all. So no, they're not. And <laughs> regardless of whether they're white or blue collar, they need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. And so, but my point is, is that in 2000, 26% of the popular vote was represented within a union. And so union workers made up 26% of the popular vote. This is, you know, pretty low compared to other Western civilizations, actually, because I think in Sweden it's like 50%. Which would make more sense because I feel like white collar and blue collar is about a split half and half. That's not a statistic that I know, but like... It feels like if you were to walk down the street and pick person number one, person number two, it would be a 50-50 chance if they're blue collar or white collar. Right, because you need an equal yeah. amount of both, you would yeah. think. Yeah, it makes up a good portion of the workforce. Makes sense. I don't know. Um, I, no, Don't quote me on that statistic. It's not a statistic. But yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's just kind of like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> um... <laughs> But in 2004, the, po- the, the union overall vote decreased from 26% to 24%. Not a huge decrease. Not a huge decrease. 2008, it decreased from 24% to 21%. That's gaining traction. Yep. And in 2012, it dropped to 18%, and mm-hmm. it remained there in 2016. Wow. So we went from 26% to 18% of the popular vote came from unions. And now I take the statistic and you can, you know, you can only pretty much take one, one real uh, clue from this is that there's not that many unions anymore. Either that or less blue collar workers are actually voting. Right. But you'd think in 2016, 
when the majority of... You would think it would stay roughly the same. Because but... we didn't have a, a voter turnout decrease in 2016, I don't think. Or it was, like, really minimal. It's, has it been fairly stable since 2000? Mm, I don't know that stat. But I know for a fact that in states that Trump won, blue-collar workers came out for him in greater okay. numbers than 2008. Okay. So that's, so that's enough even, to maybe hypothesize that... Yeah, because in 2008, not everybody was enthusiastic about Obama, just to say it in the slightest. Yeah, and that's, a, that's, a, that's enough to There were plenty of people who that, were. Obviously, he won. Right. But not everybody was enthused about him, especially on the right. And among blue-collar workers, he actually won in 2008. He won the union vote. I think he won like 60% of union workers. In 2012, he lost the vote. Do you know why? Let me guess. It's because he went from a progressive platform to a modern a... platform. Hush, I was getting there. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, but free trade agreements like NAFTA, TPP, and USMCA. Now, if you don't know what those are, I don't really have a whole lot of patience with dealing with free trade agreements. They make me frustrated um, because of <laughs> just how nonsensical. This is the worst trade deal in the history yeah. of trade deals. This is the worst trade deal in the history of trade deals. Possibly, quite possibly, ever. <laughs> it came from China. <laughs> All right. Donald Trump said that NAFTA was quite possibly the worst trade agreement ever in the history of ever. He was right. It, it was really bad. And it, and it was but signed in office. why was it bad? Okay, I'll get there. But it was signed in office, I think, by Bill Clinton. Re-back to what I said about how Bill Clinton raised minimum wage but then took their jobs away. <laughs> uh, well. um, and so, but it was continued under Obama. It was actually, I think, expanded under Obama. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which included most of the Pacific nations, including like Thailand, Taiwan, parts of China, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, these This free trade agreement basically meant that there were certain industries under these trade agreements that had no tariffs on them. So tariffs are, you know, if a country like China is going to build or manufacture a product like, let's just say, dollar store toys. China products. I don't know. <laughs> you, you have those things. Well, they have to come from somewhere. Well, they're manufactured in a lot of Chinese factories. Well, where do they go from there? Well, they get put on a boat and they go to a U.S. harbor or to another port and they get thrown in the warehouse. made in China? Probably. There's probably a lot of things that are made in China that we don't realize are made in China. There are even, there's even, this is how nuanced some of these trade agreements will get, is that they'll be manufactured in Mexico, but assembled in China, and then purchased in the United States. It gets so ridiculously nuanced, this is why I'm not going to go into the weeds on this, but the bottom line is, is that a large portion of U.S. manufacturing got shipped out because it was cheaper to go to not only Mexico, but to China and other countries around the world that have lower standards of worker rights. Because a free trade agreement means that the trade is free. Yes. So if you want to, as an American businessman, make your cars not in Michigan anymore at the Ford plant, but want to uproot it and bring it to Mexico, there's no cost for you to do that. And in fact, it's a benefit because the labor is cheaper down there. So not only are you not having to pay as many benefits, but the actual minimum wage is way cheaper. So a Mexican worker will go to a factory job and say, pay, get paid $5 an hour. And he's like, this is wonderful. I only need $5 an hour. It's great for Mexico. It's bad for American workers. 
So the American workers are not out of a job. And that's why you saw an increase in unemployment during the Obama administration, especially in key swing states that Trump won, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin. Manufacturing, they call it the Rust Belt because a lot of America's manufacturing is done in that part of the country, in the Midwest, Hmm. along the Great Lakes. It's convenient because history, Great Lakes, convenient waterway system to transport things around. That makes sense. Yeah. So, but anyways, there's still been a long-standing history of manufacturing jobs being placed in those states. Mm -hmm. And so when these trade agreements came out, it basically ripped the carpet out from under them and they took the jobs and they shipped them off to China and Mexico. Those workers aren't going to fly to Mexico and China to get their jobs back. Right. They're staying here, but they're unemployed now. Or they might get scattered and go to places like a quick trip, like my grandpa during the Great Recession. He got he lost his job, and he I think he still works with Quick Trip. He's a manager. He's he's in management. Good for him. But he was yeah he was displaced and put into an industry that was not his first choice and not his specialty. It's unfortunate, especially for the people that are like obviously you're never too old to learn things, but a lot of people perceive themselves as too old to learn a new yeah. trade or. They don't have the option to go back to school because it's too expensive or they've got family obligations or whatever. And so it's unfortunate when that kind of thing happens for somebody who only has one one skill or one trade that they can do. Well, here's something else that unions do, bringing back to the union argument, Mm -hmm. is that a lot of the unions in this country were actually in that area because a lot of unions are manufacturing unions. Well, when the manufacturing jobs goes away, there's no union to represent manufacturing workers. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So, again... Correlation is not causation, but that would make sense. But in this case, there's a a strong connection there. Yeah. And so... Democratic, the Democrats in general, the Democratic Party, has for a long time been known as the working man's party. There is a lot of, uh, you know, coalescing around farmers' rights and farmer issues as well as labor issues in the big cities. And they, they did really well with a lot of the platform that they represented because they represented the poor guys. Now, Republicans have always been the party of big business. They've always been the dudes who are like, let's make sure that we hype up the very top 1%. And the idea of trickle-down economics has always been a Republican idea. This was generally the separation in the two-party system is that you had the working man party and the, you know, the, the, the rich business party. And then somewhere in the middle, the middle class had to figure out which side they supported more. Mm-hmm. And it often meant who leaned one way or the other. And so, but in recent years, we've seen... Corporate America, which was historically represented by a lot of the Republican Party, has actually found a way to take over both parties. And so now you're no longer seeing, within a system, a two-party system, you're no longer seeing a split in party values, especially when it comes to economic issues. In fact, you see one party with two different social issues that they represent. So a lot of Democrats will represent gay rights, transgender rights, or you know minority rights, whereas conservatives generally represent a lot more of like the christian mentality or white conservatism you know what i'm saying or at least the popular christian mentality yeah right exactly it's not all of them but i mean there's something like 37 percent of the vote is made up by evangelical christians in the country and 82 percent of them voted for donald trump that's wild so that i have so many problems with that that's insane but so you get what i'm saying yeah it's not because donald trump's jesus it's because he represents and promised to defend certain ideals on a social platform right which on the surface it makes sense but yeah when you dive into it it doesn't really make sense but regardless 
you now have a system where corporate America now owns both parties. Well, what does corporate America hate the most? Unions. Why? Because they represent the problems of the little guy who they don't want to have power. Because that power struggle between the rich and the poor is always going to be there. Mm. But the rich have gained an upper hand through free trade agreements, which pretty much benefit them only. Because big business guy doesn't have to move to have someone make manufactured goods for him. Right. You know, like big boss man Jeff Bezos does not need to work in China to have his Chinese factories make things for everyday people. Another unfortunate consequence of the world becoming so small. Yeah, and globalization ultimately is going to open up some of this stuff. But the answer is not free trade agreements. There are policies that I'm not super well versed on, to be quite frank. But I know that there are ways that you can kind of incorporate things. So, like, uh, one of the ideas that I don't think is is no longer in the USMCA, which stands for U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. The, the North American Trade Agreement, which was NAFTA, is now replaced by U.S.-Mexico-Canada. And that new trade agreement that Trump signed the law, one of the ideas, again, I don't think it's very strongly enforced, is that both Mexico and I think some of the other countries that it does work with have to raise worker rights to the level to a comparable level of some American rights. So it's, it's So you can't pay the Mexican worker four fifty an hour. Yeah, you'd have to pay it to a similar wage as an American. Yeah, so if the American's seven twenty five, you gotta pay the Mexican worker at least six dollars. You have to make it at least a little less tempting to just jump ship. That's interesting that he would do that. No, that's why Donald Trump is categorized as a populist and not a traditional Republican. And that's why the establishment didn't like Donald Trump is because he talked about left issues that normally were Democratic Party For somebody platforms. who's such a big businessman, like, you would think that he wouldn't even care. I think he, well, again, and not all of the things that he talked about came to fruition. Like, when he talked about NAFTA being the worst trade agreement, he created NAFTA 2.0. And it had a few things that were different about it, but by and large, it was NAFTA 2.0. Well, yeah, so, when you said U.S., Mexico, Canada, I was like, isn't that all of North America? <laughs> exactly. And now the the actual nuances and agreements within those trade agreements are, there's not a lot of difference between them in actuality. Like, in, in result and outcome, not, not much changed. Got it. So my opinion on true free trade agreements of like, oh, there's no tariffs between us. Sound good if you're, you know, exchanging with, like, Germany or the U.K., Somebody, somewhere where somebody like, who has a similar where, economic standing. Yeah, similar quality of life or cost of living. Those sort of countries, I think, free trade agreements could be done pretty pretty evenly, and like I don't think it would affect American workers as much. Mm-hmm. But like uh, during the like uh, the U.S. MCA, I think one area that was a true tree, free trade agreement was like agriculture. So the U.S. Uh, avocado industry crumbled. Why? Because Mexican <laughs> farmers are way more efficient. And way less expensive to produce avocados. American farmers in California and Arizona that produce avocados, they couldn't compete. They couldn't compete with their with their southern border neighbors. You know, right? They, they just they just could not. There was no angle that they could make. I mean, there's no where previously tariffs had made it at least even right. for the United States to do trade with Mexico. Right. So if it's even, then you could say, well, maybe I'll buy from the American guy because I'm American. So right. not only did they have you had the the social advantage, but when the economy crumbles, people are going to go for whatever's cheapest. Yeah, I mean, Walmart's probably living it up right now because groceries are cheap as hell at at Walmart. 
Yeah. So people are going to stop buying from places like Target because it's cheaper. Although Target definitely hedged their bets when it came to shipped. They really <laughs> true. They really got lucky there. Right. So with this assault on the working class, because the majority of the people affected by these free trade agreements is not people like Jeff Bezos. In fact, quite the opposite. Or he not even benefits. people in corporate America. It's like people who make $250,000 a year or more benefit from, from things like this. The, that class of people is not evil, but they, they, they benefit from these from from these trade agreements. And the working class, people who make less than $100,000 a year, they're the most affected. Mm-hmm. And when you have just a two-party system and both parties represent these ideals of free trade, you know, big business, there's no representation for us anymore. So not only has the the union been destabilized and its power taken away because we've gone from 26% of the vote, which, man, if you're a presidential candidate, you might want to angle for that union vote because if you can win that, boy, you might have a good chance. I mean, a quarter of the population is enough to win the presidency because you'll have party allegiance and right. then you, if you can win that middle middle of the ground vote, because a lot of union voters are independents, mm-hmm. they vote whichever party they feel represents them best every four four years, every cycle. They 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 switch back and forth. Yeah. That's why they're called swing states. A lot of swing states have a high union population. Interesting. So again, with the union now, like I mean, you've just basically taken a bunch of workers and gone and scattered them. Well, they no longer are part of a union. They're no longer organized. They no longer represent a power structure, right? Because when a union endorses a candidate, the union workers generally follow suit and go work, go vote for that candidate. Right. So now there's no incentive for people to take up the issues of those people to win them over. I mean, that's what you're seeing right now. Bernie Sanders dropped out and Joe Biden's not really made any sort of, you know, like push in the direction of the left to try and win over some of those voters. Because the the percent is small enough to where it doesn't matter. As well, much. they're not organized. They're still there, but they're just not organized. There's no real clear demands being made. There's no, I mean, outside of like Medicare for all, but he's not going to compromise on that. You know, Medicare for all, uh, fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. He might compromise on that, but by the time he enacts it, and you know, if he gets elected, it'll be like six years. It'll be this like with inflation and buying power going up, or buying power going down, inflation going up, like. Again, these issues that Joe Biden represents do not represent the working class. Bernie Sanders represented them to a certain extent. Some would argue that he didn't represent them perfectly, but he represented them better than most candidates. Mm-hmm. In fact, all of the candidates, he represented them better than, yeah. than, than all of them. And so when he drops out and is no longer pursuing driving the, the party platform to the left on these issues for worker rights, well... Workers are no longer organized to to basically, like, there's just not enough organization from the working class to say, listen, all 26% of us are not voting unless you come to the, to, with us. Right. There's no, there's no collective bargaining anymore. Not in the workplace, not politically. Well, there is some, but not enough to really make them It's think not widespread. About it's not widespread, but it's just not powerful enough. A quarter of the vote is good, but less than 20%. That's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. And so because the two-party system damages, does damage to the already damaging predicament that the working class find them in, like the, the, these, these policies and systems ultimately take the corporate class and give it power 
and then pit the working class against each other. And here's how that works. So before I dive into that, I want to bring this back to Stockholm Syndrome. So the middle class of America and the working class has to an extent bought into the value system of the corporate class. Because when I looked up a lot of these working class issues, in 2016, the vote was split between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump from unions. It was 50-50. Interesting. And this is why. Because if you hear from a populace, someone who supports Donald Trump, who, like, poor whites, people from Appalachia, you know, we're talking poor white people, they often talk about how they don't want to be taxed. So they say tax, lower taxes on the ultra-rich because they don't want to lose their jobs, right? Because they've bought into the mentality of trickle-down economics. Lower taxes on the rich so we can get more money because that's what, what they need. They need more money. Mm-hmm. And minimum wage isn't getting it. So we, right. need, we need the corporations to give us a raise and have more money to give them a raise. So lower taxes. That's number one. You'll see um, corporate bailouts during economic crisis. This is something we're seeing right now. So not only did Donald Trump in 2016 give giant corporations huge, massive tax cuts, they took that money instead of doing what was thought that what they'd do with it is that they'd start reinvesting it into payroll. They took it and reinvested it into the stock market for their own selves. Well, there's been a number of companies who have totally bottomed out and they have nowhere else to go but the government. So now they're with arms open wide, hands stretched out. Give me a handout. Keep my business alive. Now you have the working class who's like, crap, we need our job still. Don't let them go under. Mm-hmm. Give them the bailout. We can't afford this company to go under because where am I going to work from there? Right. I can't lose another job. Right? This is this is where the working class is at right now. We can't let them go under. We, we can't lose our jobs. We can't lose our jobs. Yeah. And, and that's that's the unfortunate thing is that, at least in the current economic climate, a lot of people have been forced to go home regardless of whether they can yeah. afford it or not. And you see people rioting in the streets because they need the money to get by. I don't a know about rioting, people, but even even in Burnsville, I've seen a lot more people sitting on street corners asking for money. Yeah, but I mean, you saw just the other day, the governor's mansion had like a thousand people out in front. Oh, advocating. I don't know if I would consider that a riot, but it was definitely mm-hmm. a demonstration. Well, that's what I mean by rioting. You know, they were, they were. Picketing. Sorry, when I hear when I hear riot, I think no, they weren't burning things. I, down I and think pillaging. throwing rocks and torches being no, thrown. They weren't, they weren't pillaging St. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't vikinging it out there. Uh, but so they're they're crying out for help. Really, that's what this is. You have you have people who just want to go back to work and make money and be honest working class people. I honor that. I I really do think that's. But here's where we're at. How did we get here? Well, we had the idea of universal basic income floating around. It's not like it's impossible. You could make ta- you could make cuts to the military spending, or you could increase the taxes like everybody thinks we should, and you could start to pay for some of these working class people to continue to survive and stay home where it's safe, right? Yeah. But but the only reason why they'd be advocating for it is because they're not safe at home. They're not yeah. safe because they're not making a paycheck. So it doesn't matter if they're home or if they're out there dying from coronavirus. That's the saddest thing. Yeah. These people see the news. They see the stats. They've seen China. They've seen Italy. They see New York. They see people literally building temporary morgues in refrigerated trucks in the Bronx. They see that on the news. It's not like they're oblivious to it, but they see that and say, I I'd, risk to to that. I'd risk that for the paycheck. Let that sink in. 
working class people are willing to risk life and limb and everyone they love so they can go back to work and yeah. make a little paycheck just to get a little bit by, you know? And I think that's the that's the saddest thing about this crisis. And But you have on the other side of the political spectrum, the working class left, who look at these issues and sympathize, but then they disagree. Wow, this is wild. Sorry, I don't mean to... That's okay. This is a, a point to be made about the fact that people need their jobs. Yep. Evidently, 45% of Americans, and this was in 2019, this was December 18th, so right before the shit hit the fan. Yep. 45% of Americans had $0 in their savings account. Ooh, here's another stat for you. 24, I'm not finished, sorry. Oh, sorry. 24% on, like, the ne- the next bracket was 24% of people had less than 1,000. So that is pretty damn near 75% of Americans that have $1,000 or less I heard something in their like, savings accounts. I heard something that like 60 to 70% of Americans could not afford an unexpected $400 bill. Yeah, that more or less corroborates this. And you know what also corroborates that is that the voting population, 70% of the Americans who voted in 2016 fell under $100,000 a year. Well, and that's the hilarious thing when I was researching, like, you know, money, like things that you do when you have money, like smart money decisions that you can make when you have a job and you're trying to adult and, you know, do the thing. The recommended amount of savings, then that's just savings that doesn't count like what you've got in the stock market if you have anything, but just your savings account evidently should have six months worth of expenses. And given the job that I had, I calculated how long it would take me to save six months worth of expenses, barring any extra things like car repairs or Mm -hmm. hospital visits or anything like that. Barring any of those emergency expenses, if I were able to save, it would have taken me something like 20 years to save up six months. That's nuts. And some people try and actually do that, and they put their life behind. Like, they, they lose years on their life trying to get to that point. So right. they can start having a family or buying a house, and they just never make it there. Right. And so here's where, like, obviously th- these are issues. Who's responsible, though? I, I truly, honestly believe it's greedy corporations and the wealthy who are too greedy to see outside of their own desire for wealth. Well, and if you think about it, if you're born into riches, and you know, how they, would you know the difference? They, yeah, that give, that gives a a mental image of like a prince that was raised in a castle. But like, if you were born into a rich family, like even the difference between your family and my family when we started going out, I was like, why do you shop at Target? The groceries are so expensive. <laughs> and you're like, why do you shop at Aldi? The produce goes bad so fast. Yeah, right. Like, it's, it's true. And even I grew up in a in a middle class family. Yeah, and I I thought we were middle class. You are little class. And just... technically, I think we were, but it was lower middle class, and you sure. guys were probably upper middle class. Yeah, I think my grandparents are considered upper middle class, and right a, in a certain respect. But like, well, even your 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 dad, yeah, I even from with my grandparents being so close to my family, right? You so, did, yeah, but even you even that. your dad, as much as he makes, he I don't know exactly how much he makes, but yeah. even with three children. He still makes more net than my dad. That's true. And so... You can tell by his house. Sorry, I don't have to know that much. (laughs) That's true. 
and you can just tell the difference there. And we're still in the same economic class by most by most standards. Yeah. Imagine what it's like between lower class to the extreme wealthy. Yeah, just that think about it. Huge. Like there's well, and there was even a study done that kids born into rich families lack empathy that kids born into poorer families have. Yeah. Like when you put them together in college, there was I I read the story of this kid who was in, you know, he was in college. The professor asked like if you were if you had a million dollars, like what would you do with it? And he said something to the effect of I would um like save it for my kids or invest it back into my community or something like that cuz he grew up in a poor family and he knew mm-hmm. what it was like not to have money. And but he he like got a scholarship to a really fancy school and so he was in with the rich kids. Yeah. And the entire class looked at him and was like why the fuck would you do that? Yeah. And and that's that's so sad. And you can you can see it in the rhetoric. If you look at like uh like again a lot of politicians today are bought by corporate America. A lot of their programs reflect this sort of like, if you're poor, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. But if you really look at the numbers and the stats and how wealth, like, like you have a greater chance of being, of dying in the same class that you were born into. Right. Than you do of any mobility between the classes. And that's largely because of the way that the system has started to sort of evolve is that lower class people have such a difficult time working out of that lower class situation into the middle class and the middle class trying to work into the upper class is well, even more for, difficult. And the funny thing is it's not for lack of hard work cuz no. people harp on like go to college, go do this, go do that, but what if you can't afford it? And, and the less money, it, the less can money you, you take on the debt afterwards. Right. And the less money you make, the more difficult that is exponentially. It does not take long after you sink below that $100,000 a year mark to where it's just not yeah. even a, an option. And and so this kind of this is where I think we're starting to paint the picture of abuse of the ultra wealthy towards the lower classes and even parts of the middle class. Well, and, and it's a it's a slow fade type of scenario because between like inflation is a process. It takes time. Yeah. And so But when wages are stagnant. So do the the ebbs and flows of economic systems. But yeah, when wages stay the same But inflation keeps going know, up and buying power goes down, your you dollar know, one, becomes way less valuable. One year Doritos are two dollars a bag and twenty years later they're five dollars a bag, but you're only making two dollars more an hour. Yeah, your Doritos just became more valuable. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but since the industrial revolution, the working class and corporate class have never gotten along. I mean, it's just, again, it's, it's, it's a natural, uh, you know, the haves and has nots have always gone at it. You know, that's, that's the age old saying, you Mm -hmm. know, and, but again, going back to, I think how this, this manifests as Stockholm syndrome is that politically you see a fractured working class and a unified corporate class Mm -hmm. and the support of the corporate class from the working class is sort of a new concept because again you have republicans and democrats fighting over which corporate party they like more the working class is fighting for scraps from a democratic party and the working class is like hey maybe if we give these private businesses a chance to prove themselves we'll make more money than the democrats who would give it to us as a handout Neither system is great for the working class, but you have them perfectly split down the middle, Republican, Democrat. Well, and even to the point of people 
people don't tend to stay at small businesses because small businesses are less likely to give, be able to give things like health insurance right? and you know other benefits that you would get from working in a giant corporation like yeah. they have more money at their disposal so they can they can be like hey we've got this health plan that's available to you we have this you know gym membership that's you still have to pay money but it's half the price of what it would be if you didn't work here right well here's another thing when candidates who support ideas that benefit workers first like uh, medicare for all it doesn't benefit jeff bezos he, he has an infinite amount of money. He doesn't. It doesn't matter to him where he goes to the hospital or for what procedure he needs to have done. He'll have it done because he's Jeff Bezos. Right. It doesn't affect him. What is a Medicare for All plan or a universal free tuition program? Who does that help? That helps people who couldn't have afforded that in the first place or who could afford it, but it would have cost an arm and a leg. It helps with the upward mobility. It does help with upward mobility. And candidates who come out and represent ideas like that are often branded as like socialist or at least from like a democratic standpoint. Like Joe Biden said like, oh, Medicare for All is pie in the sky. He didn't call it anything bad. He just called it idealistic, which again puts a negative spin on something that's totally possible because Literally look at every other Western developed country in the world. They have all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Their economies haven't imploded. They just don't have as many billionaires as we do. <laughs> and so, like, again, I think these ideas are then often shot down by media outlets and then it gets spread word of mouth because I've heard, you know, people talk about, especially working class people on the right. They'll be like, I don't want no socialists like Bernie Sanders. Brr. But then you hear people on the left, working class left, people are like, man, but if we vote for Bernie Sanders, will the people on the right come over to us? And is it just like a, it's just impossible. Oh, it's just impossible. I know, I've heard the, I've heard the despair and like, well, if Bernie Sanders did get elected, then. He'd lose because not, not many people are willing to get on board with that. Well, either that or if he did win, he wouldn't be able to get anything done because his views are so left. A million and one reasons as to why not, not to vote your conscience. Like we talked about last time. There's a million and one reasons, even amongst candidates, not just a party standard. Right. But like, but like, even when there's a Bernie Sanders, people, people are like, oh man, I just, I want Bernie to win, but boy, I don't know if he'd get anything. And there's just this lack of faith and there's a lack of trust, which is well, well deserved. The lack of trust in either parties. And people are like, yeah, I should just go with the realistic guy. The guy who just keeps things going, man. Maybe I should just, you know, Joe Biden. He's familiar, man. Yeah, and he's, he's had experience before. Maybe maybe he'll give me something like, I don't know, $15 minimum. Maybe that's all I, I can already take. You start to rationalize mm-hmm. the scraps as yeah. like, these are these are benefits, right? And and with corporate corporations, another side note, they also have the rights of personhood. And this was developed by Citizens United, which is horrible awful group of individuals um they gave How do you corporations really feel about that yeah <laughs> uh corporations have the rights of personhood with law and politics so if you sue a corporation they have the same rights as an individual does whereas in previous previous history you know not so far off if a corporation got sued it went it didn't go to a civil trial it went to like a, a small claims trial or you know a different sort of court it didn't have like, it didn't have the same repercussions as, like, a murder trial. Mm-hmm. It didn't have the same system or setup as, like, a murder trial would. But it does now. Corporations have personhood. They, they get a jury. They get a judge. They get all this stuff. They have investigations done. It's, it's ridiculous. So if, you know, even if something like a Medicare for All plan were to go into a place, 
corporations could sue it on grounds of unconstitutionability, you know, whatever, because the Constitution talk about healthcare. So you could say it's unconstitutional to implement a healthcare system for everybody because that's unconstitutional. And a corporation could bring that case to the Supreme Court with all of their bargaining power through money and power. And they could bring it to the courts as an individual would. So if Joe Schmo on the streets felt like it was unconstitutional, he could sue his state or his government as an individual because it's <laughs> unconstitutional. He has the right to do that. Well, not corporations have that same right. But Joe Schmo doesn't have billions of dollars in assets. Corporations do. And that's why it's dangerous because corporations yeah, are the collective that... of, of many, many rich people. And so now we're, it's not just one rich person going to court, you know, uh, Joe Schmo versus the people. It's, it's corporation A versus the people. And the people are already weak. That's wild. So, yeah. So now you have them with the same rights. So big businesses have the same, are valued legally as an individual. Think about that. Legal standards value big business the same way that they value you as an individual. So if you were to kill a big corporation, it's the same detriment if you were to kill a human being. Only human beings don't have as much money to buy good lawyers as corporations do. That seems slightly unfair. It is slightly unfair. <laughs> and so, again, you see these abuses and patterns. You see how detrimental it is towards the working class. And then the working class fight over which corporate abuser they prefer more. And anytime a candidate comes into the play, i.e., if you go back to the signs of Stockholm Syndrome, a government force or police force that in most circumstances would come to try and help you, and I like that line about unless the captors themselves are members of the police force or government authority, which is something that something that uh, Bernie Sanders tried to do. He tried to represent himself as a Democrat, something that he hoped Democrat voters would feel familiar with. Mm-hmm. So they'd go from one abuser and be like, oh, he's one of them. But the abusers looked at him and was like, he's an imposter, you know? Sure. And that caused that instability. And that's why I can't make the comparison of Stockholm Syndrome because you see it here. Bernie Sanders tried to take down the system from within. He tried mm-hmm. to he tried to win the Democratic Party back over for the working class. And he was so close. And he was close, but he got shot down at the last minute. And it's because of the Stockholm Syndrome type style of mentality is that people have, they look at their abusers and they develop feelings for their abusers. People have the, and you see it, vote blue no matter who. Yeah. I'll never vote for the red abuser, but the blue one for sure. And, you know, this sort of mentality, you know, it it continues. It continues in the workplace. It continues in our day-to-day lives. And and here's how it kind of manifests, because you touched on this for a minute, and you will have a lot more personal story on this than I even will. Um, But workers will take, you know, improvements as, like, gifts of abundance, right? Like, you'll get a 50-cent raise once every other year and be like, woohoo! You'll get a 70-30 healthcare plan for $800 a month, premium versus a thousand dollar a month premium and you're Mm -hmm. like "Woo, that's a steal or you'll get a monthly pizza party from your manager and you're like wow he's such a nice guy these are considered benefits by most corporations like yeah but we bought you pizza last month or hey 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 we gave you we offered you health insurance we offered you health insurance what are you talking about hey didn't we already give you a raise the abuser then points the fingers and is like you're greedy you're greedy well and another thing that happens is that generally in bigger corporations like that for two people who have the same job title who make different amounts of money the person who makes more money is told not to say anything 
that happened to me. I remember that. Because I, when I got promoted, I was making $36,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And my previous boss, because I got promoted to the same level as him, my previous boss was only making like $32,50 or something like that. And you were told not to say anything. And I was told not to say anything because he might be mad and then they They'd would have, have to, to pay, pay him. him more money. See, that's that's the abuse. That's the abuse of corporate class abusing the working class. Well, and it's not because I was any better than him because I, w- I was totally untested. I was, I was a new promotion. Yep. But because they needed me that bad and I was on the fence about taking the promotion, they offered me something that was supposed to be a little bit sweeter. Yeah, and I think that's just that's that's really sad, and it's just another way that they can take away power from the people because that's the whole collective bargaining thing. Had I gone to Krishna and been like, "Hey, he's trying to pay me so, more than you," so and so told me that they're going to pay me this, but not to say anything. For I'm going to. I wanted same job, right? For doing the exact same job. Yeah, collective bargaining. A union in. in the company you worked for beforehand would have come together and been like, hey, if you're going to pay X, Y, and Z person this much money, which you already offered it, she's going to accept it, and you're going to pay everyone in her position as well the same amount of money because that's what's fair. Because she's not doing any more work than you, but she deserves the the pay raise. Like, you're not unfound for giving her a pay raise. Right. But you can't skip out on everybody else. That's the sort of argument that a union would make. And they probably negotiate, and you might lose from 36000 to 34000 But as a collective unit, you would have had more power with your fellow co-workers on the same level as you whatever when it when, wherever you were on the structure yep you would have had this you would have had more unity because you guys would trust each other and eventually that that culture breeds more power to you and then eventually you will be better off than if it was a dog eat dog type of scenario in culture right and which is very much the the atmosphere that it was if anybody doesn't know already i worked at arby's for three years I got promoted twice within one year after turning 18. So I went from being just a regular old team member for a year and a half to I got promoted to shift lead when I was 18. And then six months later, they were like, yo, you want another you want a, another promotion? I was like, sure. <laughs> and then by the time I left, they were looking at me for yet another promotion. So I would have become a general manager before I was 20. Had they had their way. That's nuts. Which is wild because the learning curve is so steep. It's like getting on a roller coaster and not having a stop button, which and roller coasters generally don't, but... Right. And you've even talked about personal stories to me, especially when we, you know, we've been dating since that all of that has gone down. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of comparison to other other restaurants and food chains and how you guys were were much better than the majority. You were yeah, probably a lot at of least people, middle of the road, if not upper tier when it comes to the service so industry. So many people that got hired they got hired at Arby's that were like, Oh my gosh, it's so much better than here. Like I worked at Burger King or I worked at McDonald's or I worked at this other place and it sucked so much and here's all the reasons why. Yeah. And granted a lot of these people didn't really have like not that they were dumb or stupid, they just they didn't like work. They liked weed. Sure. Which is Fine, whatever. You know, they just didn't have a super, a lot of work ethic, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And you're always going to have people like that in the workplace. At least in my experience in fast food and the fast food industry is that there were definitely people like that. But there was always people who really worked their butt off for their job. 
Well, and that was me. Like for sure. I I was telling you this earlier. I got a perfect score on my review. Like that was you know one to four. One, you suck. You need to improve, or you're gonna get fired. Yeah. Four. You're doing amazing. You're training other people. You're, you know, you're a leader. everybody loves you. Yeah. And I got fours on every single one of the categories. And I got a 15 cent raise. And that was considered high. Yeah, that was the highest that it goes. Yeah. And and again, this is like this is how the perpetuation of the abuse continues because they throw you a bone and they make you that you as the worker then take that false positive. Because I mean, Literally, would you, could you imagine being a server and you get tipped and let's just say like you get tipped like the expected 10% minimum. Mm-hmm. And then the dude was like, wait, 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 wait. You were really good today. Here's a dime. Ding. And flipped you a dime. And you were like, wow, thank you, sir. You'd be like, dude, 10 cents? Really? Dude, keep your 10 cents and keep your tip. Fuck you. Yeah. You'd be so disgusted. But when it comes in the form of like a paycheck... I don't really think about it because it's like, hey, we're going to pay you 15 cents an hour extra for doing such a perfect job. Right. Well, and granted, that was when I was a team member. But, and like, when I got promoted, they they upped the, you could get up to a quarter raise, but that was only reserved for, like, the best of the best of the best. But this you is had to point. be absolutely it's, perfect and not make any mistakes to get the quarter. But they know because they have the power here. You're a teenager. You don't know up from down. When it comes to workplace or, you know, what collective bargaining is. Right. You're just being taken for a room because you're the perfect employee who shows up on time for all of your shifts. You work probably, you know, you probably work 30 hours or if not more during that time in your life. So you were close to full time and and you you worked to the point where they were relying on you and you they should have valued you more. And on top of that, they're going to disrespect you by giving you a 15 cent raise for work that's not easy like fast food rushes are stressful not only that but when you work in such a crappy environment with crappy employees and disrespectful managers and you know poor managers to say the very least yeah and you've got to be the perfect employee and you demonstrate that and a company to show how much they value you gives you a 15 cent raise What's that improve your numbers by? Well, yeah, and you can't even get mad at your bosses. Because my boss at the time who gave me that particular raise, like, I'm still friends with her to this day. Yeah. And but, ironically, but she's powerless. She's, she's not working for Arby's anymore. But, yeah, even even her boss, like, they he had a certain amount of money that he was allotted to give raises in his group of eight restaurants. And he, if he went above that, he had to ask special permission, and you weren't supposed to do that. Yeah, and so, again, this is, like, it's not even directed to your direct superiors. It goes three, four links up the chain higher than them on who makes these decisions. Right, so if you're getting mad at your one boss, like, he's got to go crawling back to his boss to be like, hey, this person's real mad, but I kind of need them. Yeah, and and on top of that, like, let's, we were talking about this even before. Like, once you became an assistant manager, it was probably, like, what, six six links up the chain that the CEO was. Like, the, yes. like the, the structure level was not too much higher up from you. It felt high, but, I mean, you know, you had team member, shift manager, assistant manager, so you were, like, three points up the, up the chain. Mm-hmm. And then you had GM. Then you had, like, your area manager. Then you had yep. your district manager, right? And then, and then you had your regional manager. Mm-hmm. 
and then you had the C, like probably a CEO or uh, like another board member who is in charge of your your region's region. So like Midwest. Yeah, there was like there was like, if Midwest. I remember correctly, there was a couple of states that were in the region, and then there was like yeah, a Midwest. Then there was then there was person. corporate corporate headquarters and the board in Georgia, right? Yeah. And that that included the board of trustees and the CEO. Mm-hmm. And so again, like he's not super high up. But if you think about it, like, well, the decision to make, you know, give someone a raise and how much they're willing to earn goes up to that corporate class. It mm-hmm. comes down from them because right. us working class people, even in management, even the middle management guy, like your boss who made a respectable middle, middle class income on his own, who's running around with a chicken head cut off, managing <laughs> eight, eight stores and fast food stores, which are never pleasant to run. No. He's making peanuts compared to the guy above him, who well, again, and it is was part just, of that It was so class. sad because I saw person after person get promoted that had no idea the difference between their head and their ass. But right. the problem is they, the bosses didn't have anything to choose from. That's why I got promoted so quickly because I knew the difference between my head and my ass, and I was really, <laughs> really nice about it. Yeah. And so it was really easy for them to be like, I like that person. We're going to move them up the chain really, really fast. Yeah. And so there was several stories. Like, I heard about a lot of people that were like, you know, I started here, and then I got all the way up to here by the time I was 24. Like, I could have theoretically been making $100,000 plus well, well, well before I was 25. And that's at the rate that I was getting promoted. Like, yeah, once you get to be a GM, you have to be a GM for a few years before they consider you for another promotion. Right. But at the rate I was going, I would have been a GM before I was 20. And so another promotion before I was 25, which would have brought me into that 80,000 plus range. Yeah. It was not unheard of at all. In fact, one of my other bosses just got promoted and he was only a GM for two years. He just kicked ass at it and moved on. Right. And then here's another thing that I don't think we've really talked about much in this podcast because it's really difficult to formulate these things in, in like a political way or a legal way. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know plenty of managers, GMs and up, who lost relationships with spouses and children and other family members or friends, and, and they became clinically depressed and they had a lot of issues or they gained too much weight because of their issues because they can never take healthy lifestyle choices into account because work overpowered them and if they wanted to keep that good job completely well because here's sorry not to interrupt you but i've got a lot that i can say on this like the the hierarchy went like you weren't allowed to work more than 40 hours a week unless the store was in peril if you were a shift manager and below Right, so if you're a team member or a shift lead, or like you had to, you couldn't work up into that point because you still were supposed to be considered part time, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to pay any overtime, and right. so it was this whole big, you know, mess or whatever. Yep. Fine, whatever. It makes sense. That's how most minimum wage jobs are. Right. But then you get promoted. And so I was an assistant manager. I was considered full-time. And the way that they kind of, like, ease you into it is you make your hourly wage. Like, I was still being paid hourly as an assistant manager. Mm -hmm. And so, and the bulk of my my paycheck came after my 40-hour mark. 
So mm. in order to make the $36,000 a year, I had to work 48 hours a week, and that eight hours was time and a half. Yeah, and... And so I, and not to mention, I was commuting 30 to 45 minutes one way. So right. by the end of the day, especially working, I worked at least five, if not six, and on rare occasions, seven days a week. And if I had an eight-hour day, it was a short day. Right. And so that all being said, it was a lot. Yeah. And in the book that I'm reading, Viking Economics, I talked about a little bit about it last time. Um, the author, George Lakely, talked about how um, in Norway, they're one of the most productive nations on earth per capita. So production per capita, I don't know how exactly to measure it. I don't remember it off the top of my head. I know he went into it, the math behind it all. But bottom line, they produced what it takes an hour for an American to complete. They could do it in 37 minutes or something ridiculous. So they're getting the most work done. But here's what's crazy. On average, a Norwegian works 32 weeks out of the year. Yeah, and that's wild. You can't, like, that was just the way it was, like, at, at places like Arby's and right. every other fast food chain that I know of, and probably a lot of other industries, too. Because I, I, when I was working at Target, I heard murmurings of, like, the executive team leads. They had to work, like, 70, 80 hours a week. They made a butt ton of money. That's not unheard of for middle management America. Right, it's not. But the problem is... Is yeah, the baseline was forty-eight hours a week, which isn't insane if you only have to work that. But here's the kicker: is that if you're an assistant or a GM at a store, if something happens, you have to drop everything to be there. That's right. part of the job description. Yeah. So if your kid has a birthday party and a water main breaks at your store, you have to drop everything go to take go care take of it. care of it. Which, in a sense, it makes sense because a lot of small businesses run that way. Like, obviously, if you own a business, like, you have to, like, the buck stops with you. You have to take care of things. But you didn't have any of the benefits of being a small business owner. Right. Because you were still working for a corporation. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of try and bring this back in real quick. I, obviously, I appreciate your input. That's not what I'm saying. But in comparison... McDonald's workers in Denmark make $20 an hour. What? Okay, but now all the conservatives in the chat are shouting, but how much is a Big Mac? It's 25 cents more expensive than in America. That's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing burger. <laughs> I know, I'm corny. But Dude, if I... But here's that my That means point. that their Hold management on. has to be making $25, $30, $40 an hour. Yeah. And people are like, whenever we talk about minimum wage... The discussion is always, we need minimum wage to pay our workers what they deserve or what they need to live. And then the call is, is but then products will go up. No, dumbass. No, that just means the CEO doesn't make as big of a bonus this year. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous, okay? And now here's another point that I'll make. Some of those minimum wage requirements, they come from political law, etc., right? But how do you get someone who values that to represent you? Comes from a working class standpoint. So this is where what like this is we've talked about the abuse and how it perpetuates in the workplace and how it affects people on a day to day life. Yeah, but how I didn't can even we change talk, it? I didn't even talk about the culture at Arby's. Yeah, that was a that was a we, wild. We touched on it for a second, but let's just leave it there because we we don't want to go too much longer. Um, let let's 
let's talk about what needs to change. Because it's, it's all fine and good to compare. But what did Norway, Sweden, and Denmark all have in common that made them so successful when it comes to working class rights? So they had a strong, strong union organized working class. Now, when the working class are represented in the workplace, they become organized. Mm -hmm. When they become organized, the ideas that they want to present forward become much more finite and pinpointed, and so they get more of what they need. And as time goes on and more agreements are made and it keeps building, you create culture and law and standards that better the, the lives of the working class. So you, you then, on top of all that, people then grow up in a culture, 10, 15 years of being in, in working culture like that, where your needs are taken care of by your work as long as you're a good employee. When you, when you see the benefits of the union, people grow up in there and then they, they have the values of the union imprinted in them because it's culturally acceptable to accept Medicare for all, a universal college plan, $15 minimum wage, etc. Well, when that generation then starts getting into politics and they start running things and they become part of the part of the political system, their values will be represented in law. And when that value is represented in law, it applies to everybody. So now you have working class people influencing the laws that affect the McDonald's worker, the blue class or the the white collar worker, right? Yeah, I can only imagine what it would have been like had there been a union for people who worked at Arby's. Yeah, you would have had a much better time talking to your boss and their boss's boss and their boss's boss because you would have had power in the workplace to dictate some of these terms. Well, now, health insurance might have actually been health insurance and not just an HSA. A, yeah, an HSA, which health savings account, which is literally they just take money out of your check and plop it in a savings account specifically for health reasons. It's right. not actually a benefit. It's just them taking your money and placing it in a spot in case you get... It's yeah, not insurance. My, no, it's not. One of my coworkers, I'll make this brief, but one of one of my coworkers, he got appendicitis, ironically, on the job. He could have died, and he wasn't allowed to leave. That's a whole other story. But That's part of the culture. The, yeah, it's part of the culture. You, you work until you're dead. Mm -hmm. But the point is, he went to the hospital, and he had to have surgery, because that's what happens when you get appendicitis. And because his health insurance was actually an HSA, he got stuck with a $10,000 bill. That's ridiculous. And here's the thing is that people then say like, so what, we're just going to have a bunch of lazy workers? No. If a worker wants to work in the manner that Arby's expects them to, Arby's has to pay for it. Yeah. Do you have any idea as a boss of all of these people making 10 or 11 or 12 at the most dollars an hour, how many times I heard, I don't get paid enough for this shit? It's true, though, because if you're an, a GM, let's just even go higher up the food chain. If you're a GM and you work 80 hours a week, you're at your kid's birthday and the water main breaks, Arby's should compensate you for that. That's what a working class union would expect. Listen, man, you're taking away from my life, valuable moments of my life. If yeah. I got, I signed up for this job. Yes, I signed the contract. I signed the papers. I committed to this. Yeah, at least give me a bonus so gotta, I can take my kid out for ice cream. You got to make up for it. I'm going to keep your business running. You got to make up for it. And $50,000 a year ain't going to cut it. Right, which is... About what GMs got paid. Yeah, they it started at like 45000 when uh, I was there. Yeah, even worse. Yeah. And and so, again, what needs to happen is, is that there needs to be more organization in the workplace. And this is for our viewers. This doesn't just happen magically. 
You could be in any workplace and you don't necessarily have to file all the papers to be a union, but organize in your workplace. Talk to your coworkers. I know if I were working in an office right now, I'd be talking about how we as coworkers can can relate more. You don't even need to be uh, you know, left or right, conservative or Republican or whatever. You don't need to be on that political spectrum. You can talk about what's in common for you. Everybody's got bills to pay. Well, and the funny thing is if you if you work for a place like Arby's, more than likely they need you more than you need them, but they give off the illusion that you need them, therefore you stay there. Yeah, and I and I know that there aren't like rights to organize in a lot of places. I know Minnesota doesn't. We looked this up today. It doesn't have a right to organize, so you can actually lose your job like at Amazon or Whole Foods for develop for like trying to organize with coworkers. It's so sad. But you need to be strong. This requires courage and leadership to talk together and be like, hey, we, uh, us 15 folks, you know, maybe like you work in a department with 15 people in your cubicles or whatever. You need to get those 15 people and be like, hey, how are you doing with the coronavirus? How are you doing with your bills? How are you doing with all this? Hey, we're going to come together. That's the other together. thing. Like if you're, if you're working, especially in like a retail or fast food environment right now, like if you got everybody in the store on your on your side and you got everybody in the store to organize your bosses would not know what the fuck to do because they need they need people to run the store like as valuable as management is they can't do it all by themselves nope and so if you if you organized like yeah it would make life hell for your bosses and a lot of times it's not even your boss's fault so keep that in mind but at the same time it's got to start somewhere it's not it's not supposed to be easy nope but here's a point. This is coming from a from a business student. Um, in business school, we were taught that the most expensive uh, expense of a business is its turnover rate. It's so it it's ninety it really plus is. percent of the time it's it's cheaper for them to meet your demands than to fire you. So if they fire you in mass, this is why it's important to come together as a, as an organization, as a, as a union, as as unionized. What is union? It's coming together. Mm-hmm. It's a, a twig is weak, but a bundle of twigs is strong. You take that mentality and you say, you, "Listen, you you can affect one of us. You can say, hey, 'Hey, been organizing with so and so.' You're fired. That can work if the union is weak. But when you come together as a group and say, "Listen, you can't fire the whole floor.'" It's just not worth it. because if you fire everybody and have to retrain someone, that costs more money than well, yeah, it does even for if them. you fire one person. But if especially when but it if they comes just meet to your like, demands, it might be cheaper. Yeah, and so give them that that option. They don't ha- right now. Corporations in America don't have that other option. People aren't organized. People aren't making those demands, and it has to happen at the. At, so you know, I'll be honest. If today people hear this podcast and it goes viral and millions of people start organizing across America, we won't see the effects for a long time. So you have to be strong in this. You have to organize and you have to stay consistent with it. You have to know your demands. You have to know what's going on. And this requires talking to your coworkers and figuring out what's going on and getting to know them personally. And I think you'd actually be happier once you get to know some of the deep personal struggles of their life. No matter where they stand on the political spectrum, mm-hmm. you'll find you have more in common than you don't. Right. And this well, is especially something... if you're working at the same place. Like, if nothing else, you have work in common. Yeah, and I think this is something that um, I think is interesting, is that um, this nation, the Founding Fathers, they wanted to build a, a, a nation on a freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of thought, right? We're allowed to have our own opinions because they knew that what we had in common made us way more stronger than what our differences were. We are allowed to have differences, but what made us 
common is what made us strong. And so when you come together with your coworkers, maybe you got a coworker who doesn't like gay people. That's a tough pill to swallow. But if you represent yourself and your community well, you might bring them along board. But what you can do at the very minimum is say, hey, I respect your opinion, but we both have the same struggle against this guy. Well, yeah, and who knows? Your coworker might be making more money than you are. And if you figure that out, maybe your coworker doesn't even know you make less money. And maybe you guys come to the boss together, you and whoever else is in your workplace, and you guys all get raises. Because it's cheaper to give you the raise than it is to fire you. And so this is just one example. But something that I think the corporate class does not want working class people to do is they don't want them to organize. Because they're making a lot of money right now. Jeff Bezos cut healthcare for a good portion of uh, Amazon workers. And as a result, his net worth went up by $21 billion since the coronavirus started. Dude, we're in the middle of an economic crisis and his net worth went up. How does that happen? It happens because there's no, there's no, there's no opposition. There's no accountability for these people. There just isn't. And so you have to, you have to create accountability for them on your own because it's not going to come from the government in its current state. It's not going to come from anywhere else. You have to go out and do it yourself. We have to be self, self-motivated and self-starters and, and you know, do-it-yourselfers. And it's gonna take it's gonna take time, but this is something that I mean you have to find common ground with people in the workplace. Otherwise, it's just not gonna work. But I think even on a grand scale, something that I think needs to happen is is that as Democrats and Republicans increasingly are becoming more corporatized, a third party is needed to be coalesced around or built up. But it's not going to represent the working class if it's not built by working class people and we're not organized like we should. So again, starting unions isn't just. Uh, a benefit to you in the workplace. It'll also lead to benefits down the road as a political party. This is how most labor parties, like there's a labor party in the United Kingdom and in Scandinavian countries, these parties didn't just appear out of nowhere. No, they appeared because a hundred unions came together and said, we're going to develop a political party on common ground. We're going to promote politicians who support our ideas in government. We're going to try and create a, uh, a caucus or a coalition within the government to help push our well, ideas. Well, yeah, because if you can pass a workers' rights thing at the things at the governmental level, the com- the corporations the are going to have no choice but to follow their lead. Yeah, because as big as corporations are, they technically can't break the law. Right. And so if, they break the if, law, they if get in trouble. tomorrow the federal minimum wage was twenty dollars, they'd have they, to pay it. Every company in America would have to raise the minimum wage. To twenty dollars an hour. Yeah, or they get in huge trouble. Right. Huge trouble, and so again, this this is this is about changing power dynamics because there is always going to be a hierarchy and structure within society. We're just never going to get to an equal playing field of opportunity and outcome at the same time. It's just not going to work. But what we can do is we can close that gap. Yeah, you can raise the floor. You can you can make yeah. a minimum wage be actually livable. You can create standards that are reasonable for everybody, but it has to it has to come from grassroots basic everyday people it really does we have to be the ones who start this it's not going to come from anyone else because we're not probably going to see a candidate like bernie sanders for another 12 years i i I just don't see any progressive candidate in the field right now with the experience that he does with the record that he did and and come about he was kind of the, the the knight in shining armor for the working class and he was a he was a hail mary throw and he almost got there so we're not going to see someone like that so we have to swallow that that pill and we got to start organizing now because in 12 years we got to have a candidate 
you know, hopefully we have one 2024 and 2028, but I just don't see another candidate coming like Bernie Sanders until I'm in my 30s. Yeah, it's could, quite it's quite possible, but yeah, and that that doesn't mean that change can't come in between then and there. But that's the yeah, that's the reason why people still call America the greatest country on earth is you still have you still have rights, you still have freedom of speech, and like it's a totally American idea to fight for what you believe in, and if what you believe in is being able to spend time with your kid at his birthday party. And not have to worry about if you taking that time off work is going to cut into your rent payment for next month. Like, fight, fight for, for it. Yeah. Fight for what you believe in. Fight for what's important to you. And don't take second place on this. As a worker, you have more value than they want you to know. Like, you have so much power. And especially as a collective, the workers have way more power than the capital class. But right now we're divided. And so we got to put some of these trivial issues aside. We got to come together as a working class and say, hey, we deserve better. We deserve better. And we're going to get better, or you're going to suffer for it. Heads are going to roll here. Who's it going to be? And so we got to figure out how to start things. Google how to start a union. There are tips and tricks and pointers all throughout the internet. Go look into it and see what works for you. Talk to coworkers about it. You gotta get discussion rolling now. It, it starts. It starts at the grassroots level. Well, yeah, and remember, if you get enough people to agree with you and to agree to do this with you, like there gets to be a certain tipping point, and especially if you work in a place like a retail store or a mm-hmm. fast food restaurant, like that tipping point is it's lower than you'd think. Yeah. Like there was so many times where we had to keep literally the worst people at their jobs on the planet because we just needed to fill payroll hours and we needed to have people on the floor. Yeah. And, and so, so if if the worst employee can not be fired because they need them that bad, you, you can get together power. with your coworkers and that's exponentially more power than one person who's horrible at their job. Yeah. And so it's it's easier than it sounds. It's still going to be tough to make lasting change. But again, it starts small. small. Start by seeing if you guys can get a, a raise. Start if, start by seeing if you guys can get uh, improvements to your benefits. You know, think, start small. You don't have to be like, yeah, we, d- we demand, you know, 33% of the company. <laughs> you know, but like... <laughs> You know, start start figuring out ways that are that are ways that you can start chipping at this because uh, this is what it's going to take. This is what it's going to take to make sure that we all have better lives and better standards. And here's the thing: our society is only ever strong as strong as as its weakest link. And when the weakest link is this weak as it is now, society sits in the palm of that hand. And right now, we got to figure out a way to make sure that we strengthen our weakest areas. And continue to improve in our strong ones. And so with that, I think it's a good place to end because we've kind of talked about the issues that we need to talk about and the areas that we need to get up. I could talk about my Aries horror stories all, all night. Yeah, you really could. <laughs> but this is where, to, to finish, finish, um, this is where Stockholm Syndrome comes into play. Is the working class has bought into the values of the corporate class, its abusers, 
and they value the same things, and they, or at least they perceive to be valuing the same things, and we've bought into a system that's perpetuating abuse, and we need to wake up, we need to find a way to get out from underneath this, and we need to fight for what we believe in. Because if we don't, our kids and our grandkids are gonna suffer worse consequences than yeah. we are now. Don't just be grateful that you have a job. Be grateful for your freedom of speech and use it. Hey, <laughs> wonderfully said. Thanks for listening to episode two of the Commons podcast, Stockholm Syndrome and the Working Class. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at the Commons WCM for all of our latest updates.